You're listening to Ants Talk. My next guest was diagnosed with a rare cancer when aged just 22. Conjunctival ocular melanoma caused her to have a drastic life-saving surgery where they removed her eye, closing over the eye socket for good. Only 11 months later, she was diagnosed with stage 4 melanoma, which she then faced major brain surgery and having to learn to walk again. The one thing this girl has is determination and resilience. Let's talk more about her story. Welcome to the show, Jessica. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thanks, Anthony. How are you? I'm fantastic myself on this lovely day in Adelaide. (laughs) (laughs) We were just talking about the weather in, um, in our little hometowns before the interview and Lucky we're doing the interview to entertain ourselves. <laughs> yes, rugged up with my scarf and everything. I think it's about 14 degrees here in Melbourne. So, <laughs> uh, See, I love the cold, so I, that wouldn't worry me at all. <laughs> As you can see, it's <laughs> cold here. I've always been a summer girl. Oh, see, I'm not. <laughs> I hate it. <laughs> so, Jessica, how did this all start? What were, what were the original symptoms? Oh, it started from such a young age. I was, as long as I can remember, actually, mum used to, um, asked my GP about this little red spot that was on the white of my eye. And I'm talking back to like the age of eight to 10 is when I can remember this. And every single time the doctor would just look at it and go, oh, it just looks like a burst blood vessel. If it's still there in six months, come back. But because it didn't look overly ominous or anything like that, mum would just kind of bring it up every time I went to the GP. Um, and every time it would be the same response, even though they'd said, if it comes, it like, you know, if it's still there in six months, we'll reassess. Mm. Um, and that went on for as long as I can remember. And then I sort of hit my later teens. Um, so about 16, 17, 18, I guess, when all of those hormones were going around in my body. And I started to notice that it became a little bit bigger. It was starting to get a little bit darker in color and actually started to get a bit raised. Um, so it was no longer just this sort of red tiny like burst blood vessel looking thing it was actually something that was starting to become noticeable and for me what I was finding is that um when I would blink I could feel it a little bit and it was just a bit irritating um and things like hay fever and those sort of things used to make it worse because that always makes your eyes so dry so for me it sort of started there but even then it was a very slow process um, the doctors just used to look at it. And again, it was sort of like, well, we still don't know like what it is. Um, we don't think it's anything serious. So they just kept putting it off. And it wasn't until I was, I think it was 20 or maybe even, yeah, it was 20. Um, and the doctor finally went, okay, well, we'll send you to a local ophthalmologist. They're probably just going to need to do like pretty much like a laser surgery, the same as they would on a like red spot on your skin mm-hmm. onto the eye just to remove that spot. And I was like, oh, okay, so no big deal then. Um, I went to this appointment with this doctor and I was expecting like a you know 20-minute appointment. I had one of my friends with me. We'd come home from university. We were going to go and have like you know, a bit of a girl's night and hang out. This appointment went for two hours and I went from like room to room to room the doctor was like I need to check this I need to check that he was taking photos of the front of my eye of the back of my eye everything and it kind of got to the point where I was like okay well what's going on he's like oh well we need to do a biopsy at that point I didn't realize that a biopsy was something that they did to test for cancer I just thought it was another surgery so I was like oh okay well um we don't actually have private health insurance so can we start you know how do I do this publicly 
And he just turned to me and went, well, you don't have six months to wait to get into the public system because this could be cancerous. And that was the first time and the first moment I'd heard the word cancer at all in the relation to my health. And I was just like, yeah, I was like, what, what do you mean it could be cancerous? And I, I just couldn't hear any more of the conversation. Like my mind was just racing. And I know he kept talking about it, talking about it, talking about it. Um, you know, I sort of came into a little bit of the conversation when he was like, we know we can book you in for surgery soon. Um, I was about to start, I think my exams for uni were about a week later or something like that. So I sort of said, oh, well, we at least need to wait until my uni exams are over. And then he booked me in and I was like, oh, okay, that was really quick. Um, and then I went home and I had to try. I was so scared to have that conversation with my parents because, you know, as I said, we didn't have the prior health insurance. So we somehow had to come up with the money for the surgery. Yeah. And it was just one of those things where it's like none, none of us were expecting it. And I, was, I felt really guilty. I was like, I don't know how to have this conversation. Some random doctor who I've never met before is now telling me that we just need to drop $2,000 on a surgery. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I was like, I don't even know how to bring that up. Um, and then my parents, you know, obviously they were like, oh, of course, like if that's something that we need to do, we'll, we'll 100% go for it. Like it's your health, we'll look after you. I was like, oh, okay, mm. cool. Um, barely got through those exams. I don't think, I was so nervous about passing oh, them. And honestly, yeah. I think when I got my results back, it was like, I think the first semester of uni, I'd been a distinction student and the second second semester I think all of my units it was like 52 percent 54 percent devastated because I was like study affecting my GPA um went through with the surgeries like three days after my exams um and honestly it was like the recovery was really easy yeah. um I was I think it was right near Halloween and I remember it was like two days later and I was already at a Halloween party <laughs> <laughs> very determined to get out there and have a bit of fun still at yeah. the age of uh, 20 um and within a few days I was being oh I think it was about a few weeks I was being told that it was completely benign it was nothing to worry about and was basically told just to get back on my way and I went oh okay that was a bit of a scare it was you know I think in those moments when I was told that it could be cancerous your my perspective changed I really started to sort of think about you know I think the what ifs. The way, yeah, the what ifs and the way I wanted to change my life. So it was kind of in my mind, it was like, oh, okay, well, that was a nice little, you know, insight into some of the things I want to change. It's nice that, you know, I've had that opportunity. Unfortunately, my grades weren't great because of it. But, you know, I'm glad it's not cancerous. And now I can make some of those changes that I think are important to my life. And it's not cancerous. So that's a bonus. Um, and really just kind of went back on my way. And the doctor hadn't mentioned anything about it coming back. He didn't really mention anything about anything else. Um, and within, I think I had a couple of checkups just to make sure that the eye was healing correctly and stuff like that. Um, but everything else just kind of went back to normal. And then about six months later, I started to notice these really dark spots and were right on the, I think like this, this original spot was probably about three to five millimeters on the white of the eye and the spots on the outside of where they would have removed the actual, the first spot. Um, and I started to get a little bit nervous. I remember feeling this like sick feeling in my stomach, but at the same time I looked at it and went, 
I've got so much on my plate right now. And, you know, the first time I was so nervous and I was told that it could be cancerous, I could, was told all of this sort of thing. None of that came to fruition. And as a result, the only thing that really suffered was my, my grades at university. I really can't afford to do that again. Mm. So I just went with this whole mindset of I'll put it off to the end of the year. It's not going to be a big deal. It wasn't a big deal last time. And I'll just get through everything that I've got to do right now. Um, my mum wasn't too happy with that answer, but mm. I, was very, I was very stubborn. I was just like, I'm just not dealing with it. I can't be bothered. Um, and I also, I, I think there was also a part of me that really didn't trust that doctor yeah. Uh, I kind of had felt like I was pressured into the surgery. He kind of manipulated me in a sense with speaking about it being cancer and sort of throwing that into their arena and pushed me into a position where I had to have the surgery immediately. And then for it to come back benign, it was just this whole sort of, it felt like a bit of a power play mm. and I was a bit nervous to go back to see him. And I really kind of, put it off and I'd actually started planning on going on a gap year the year after. Um, once that whole like second year of university was finished, I was like, no, nope, I'm taking some time off. You know, I've had my brush with death. I'm going to go and like explore the world a little bit more. Yeah. I'll have a bit of fun and you know, all of that sort of thing and nothing's going to get in my way. And then um, my mum really pushed me to go and get this follow-up checkup. And I was like, okay, well I'll just go and see him before I leave for this overseas trip. You know, just give mum, you know, clear conscience, make sure she's okay. Went in and saw this doctor and he just went straight into like freak out mode. He was like, oh, no, we need to get you to see another doctor right now. And I think the thing that really annoyed me then was he was like, no, you have to cancel your trip. And then he was trying to refer me on to another private doctor. And I was just like, hold on. We've already had this conversation. I've told you I don't have private health insurance and you are trying to push me into seeing all these other private doctors and it was just that moment of like, I really don't trust you. And you're just pushing me to spend money because you say so. Mm. And it was this whole thing where I was like, no, I, I really don't trust you. So I ended up just coming to an agreement with him that I would go and do my trip to South Africa, but I'd go and get a checkup while I was there. Thankfully, my dad actually lives in South Africa. So I went and saw a specialist within two days of landing and I had surgery the following morning. So three wow. days after landing in South Africa, I was in for another surgery. Um, this doctor was such a stark difference. He was so passionate. He was so kind and like he just, I don't know, I felt instantly trusting of him. I knew that he was doing all the research necessary and stuff like that. And for me, it was like, oh, okay, well, yeah, of course I'm going to trust him. Of course I feel safe with him. And I'm not even going to second guess what he's saying. Um, he went through with the surgery. He removed the spots. Um, he did think it was um, ocular melanoma at that point. He had never seen ocular melanoma before because it's extremely rare. Mm. But he'd done all the research for me. And I, as much as I was like, I know that you haven't seen this, it was just this point of like, I know that he has done everything in his power to get the information he needs to do the surgery properly. A week later, I went back for the results and he said that it was, um, I think they were just waiting for the head pathologist to write off on the results. And basically he said, we're really surprised, but it's coming back as benign. And that means, you know, not cancerous. So yeah. I was like, oh, okay, cool. So I can go off and do all the things that I want to do now. And I went off and went traveling for six weeks. Um, and all of a sudden, 
it was like the start of January 2015, my dad was getting calls from the doctor's office and for some reason the calls hadn't been coming through all summer, um, which was that six-week period that I was traveling. And they were like, we really need to see you immediately. You need to come in. We've been trying to contact you for the five weeks that Jess has been, like that I've been traveling. And so I went in to see them and they turned around and said, no, the results. So when the head pathologist went to look at him, he refused to sign off on them because he noticed something was slightly off. And then he sent the results to pathologists all around the world to get the results like looked over and stuff. And eventually it came back as being conjunctival melanoma. And that was the first time I was diagnosed properly. Um, I was still extremely like stubborn and very much in denial. I was like, no, this can't be it. I'm not letting this get in the way. Like I still want to go travel more. I wanted to go, I was studying nutrition at university. I really wanted to go and um, volunteer in a community and work with some you know, rarer disorders and stuff that you don't see in Australia. Yeah. Um, I also wanted to go and do my scuba diver instructor course. So I was like, no, these are all the things I really want to do. If we can work out a way for me to stay here and just manage this from here, because it didn't sound that sinister. I was like, can we just work that out, please? Um, my, that doctor was like, look, we can think about it, but I really want you to go and see an oncologist. And when I went and said the, saw the oncologist, he was very much just like, it's melanoma. You don't play around with melanoma. Um, you know, we've caught it early. If we don't check that it hasn't spread, if we don't make sure that everything's under control right now, you won't be here. And I went, what do you, what do you mean? He's like, no, like melanoma kills. Melanoma is one of the most deadly cancers if you don't get it under control early. He's like, you're in a lucky position right now where we think we've got it under control, but we can't tell that until we go and do all of these scans and all of these other things. And if I was to do them in South Africa, I think the scan alone was going to cost us $5,000 out of pocket and stuff like that. And I was kind of, my dad was still like, oh no, just, you know, we'll do it. We'll do it. Like, and I just started to think, I was like, no, this is me being a little bit unreasonable. Um, you know, as much as I really want to stay and I really want to continue doing the things that I would love to be doing, it seems a bit ridiculous to start putting that money on the table just so I can stay on a trip right now. I'd rather go yeah. back to Australia where all of that's done for free and then come back and do this trip later down the track. So I was absolutely de devastated. And within, I think it was 10 days, I was back on a flight to Australia um I my mum was just like the best in me so within a couple of days I had an appointment with appointment with a GP um we'd gotten in to see a, another eye specialist she tried to get me in with the old eye specialist and he actually refused to see us no. um <laughs> which was I not that much of a surprise to be honest <laughs> um I think uh, yeah, that was just an experience in itself. I've actually, in my book, I do refer to him as um, Dr. Moneybags. So um, <laughs> for a few obvious reasons, but um, yeah, it, he, he didn't want to see us. So we started seeing other doctors and stuff. And within a couple of weeks, we were in with like the top doctors at the Royal Idea Hospital in Melbourne. Um, and there's specialists there who only deal with ocular melanoma and that's their profession. Um, and that's their specialty, which, um, you know, is quite strange for a cancer that's so rare. They still have doctors that are that specialized yeah. in the area. Um, 
And I just remember like when I used to go into the clinics and stuff, the the rest of the people in the waiting room were, you know, in their seventies and eighties. And then little old Jess, who was, I think, 22 at the time, 21, 22 at the time. uh, I used to sit there and, you know, I'd always have like my mom or my grandma or someone there to keep me company. And there'd always be this funny look when the doctors would call the name and, you know, because it's me and I'd be like, Oh yeah, yeah, that's me. (laughs) And I would kind of like walk into the room and then my mum or my grandma would follow me. You kind of get these looks from everyone else in the waiting room. And it was this look of like pity and surprise at the same time, because it just wasn't heard of in my age group. Um, and we went through it and then the doctor was like, Oh, okay, well you've done everything right. Like, you know, we can see that the, the results do show that it was ocular melanoma. Um, you know, at the moment, our goals with ocular melanoma is to first preserve the um, pre- preserve the site, then it's to preserve the structure, and lastly, it's to preserve the life. Right now, we're in the first stage where we're preserving the site. Um, we don't think that anything's going on. We're just going to watch you for every six weeks. I just remember going, oh, I could have stayed in South Africa <laughs> and done all my scuba diving and done everything and just being watched over because they didn't put me in for any of the scans that the doctor in South Africa was telling me that I needed to do. Yeah. They were just like, well, yeah, no, we're pretty confident that it's good. So we're not going to bother. I was like, oh, okay, cool. So what do I do now? And he was like, oh, you can go back to uni. I was like, well, I don't really feel like going back to uni. And I went, um, just went back to work and did a few things and sort of faffed around for six months. Um, and it kind of just got to the point where I was like, oh, okay, like this, you know, for me, this cancer thing's actually been extremely easy. I'm so lucky. Yeah. I was like, I don't feel sick. I don't look sick. I haven't had to have any of those, you know, nasty treatments that are the things that really do make cancer such an awful experience. I was like, mm. yes, I've had this sort of brush and brush with death and that sort of, you know, that little I guess those thought patterns that go with it and, you know, all that sort of thing. But other than that, like this hasn't been that difficult for me. And I was so grateful for that. Um, and eventually I went back and the doctor was like, okay, we're going to start putting out the appointments. Cause really this looks like we got it under control very early on and we're pretty confident. And then as that sort of happened, it would have been within about two months. There was this tiny, like, lump that grew under the left eyelid and it felt like a little pea and as well as that so I started to notice that and then when I looked closer at my eye there were also these tiny little black spots that had come and I just remember thinking not again like this can't be happening but my doctor had also said that he wondered whether or not I would always have some form of discoloration on my eye and he said look you might just be really susceptible to having freckles on the eye as well so if you do notice things, first go to your GP before you come straight up to the Royal India. So I went in, saw my GP. He looked at my eye for 30 seconds and was on the call, like on the phone to the Royal India, which is never a good sign. Um, and then I was sent up to the hospital and they said, at that point, my specialist who I normally saw was actually on a conference for ocular melanoma in Europe and he was going to be away for a little while. Wow. So I saw someone else and he said he thought it was like that lump underneath my eye was just a blocked tear duct and nothing to worry about. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. And he's like, look, we'll still do a biopsy on those other little spots, but I don't really think it's anything too serious. So I was like, oh, okay, cool. And we went through with that surgery. 
And then when I came back for the results, uh, my original ophthalmic oncologist was back and he took one look at the spot underneath my eye, felt it and went, that's melanoma. This is a lot more serious than we thought originally. And now we're going to have to take a more drastic response. And I was like, what? And he's like, yeah. And for me, like my mum was sitting there and we're like, oh, okay. So that means we're going to have to, in my mind, I was like, okay, well, the next step is to preserve the site. So we're probably like preserve the the location. So we're probably going to have to remove the eye, which was something I always in the back of my heart, like mind knew that was going to happen. And with that, he sort of referred us out to a couple of places. I had to go and then start doing some scans. Um, they referred me to the youth cancer services, which are for cancer patients between the ages of 15 and 25, um, to get some support, both, um, you know, that psychosocial support there, as well as like some, they do have like financial aids as well in, um, Victoria. And so I went there and then I was still under the impression that it was just like the eye was going to be removed and they were going to sort of you know, I, I knew in my mind, I was like, okay, cool. I'll have like a glass eye. And yeah. my dad flew over at this point and he ended up having a phone call with my doctor before my next appointment. And it was in that phone call that the doctor actually said to him, he said something about, um, I think he said something to my dad about like closing over the eye socket or something like that. My dad's response was like, oh, okay. So how do we go about doing the glass, you know, how, so what do we do about the glass eye? Does that take a while to create? And the doctor said, oh, no, because we're doing this surgery um, called an exenteration, there's no, like, we have to take the eye, eyelids as well because that's where the cancer spread to. Wow. And my dad was like, so what, what do you mean? Like, what, is that, what does that mean? He's like, well, it means that we're closing it over. And dad's like, oh, so do you close it over, let it heal, and then, uh, like, you know, like recreate the eyelids like what happens and the doctor's like no it stays closed and my dad was like oh okay um all right and then he had to take me and explain this all to me and of course I was furious I was like this is ridiculous I'm not going to go through it that's absolutely absurd um you know I'm going to look like an absolute freak this is not okay I didn't sign up for this and like I think for about 25 minutes I just went off and my dad was very smart and had taken me to a very secluded space like we'd gone and had like a a, we got a coffee and we walked down the beach like a long way and then Mm. he told me at the end of the beach walk so like there was no one else around so I could really just kind of let off some steam and I just remember crying and yelling and I was just like I can't do this and we're gonna have to look at all the other options I was like I'm gonna go in there and we're gonna you know go in and fight for the right for me to keep my eye (laughs) (laughs) I was like you know it was something that I was like oh they're just being cruel and I know he wasn't but it was just that sort of moment of like yeah it's gonna be something else and they're not thinking outside the box and I was like you know we went in and we had like I was like we're gonna do chemo or radiation or there's this new cool drug called Keytruda and that could work as well and the doctor was like he just like sat there and it was like this hour and a half long meeting with this doctor and he just went, nope, not going to happen. That doesn't work. Melanoma doesn't respond to chemotherapy. Melanoma doesn't really respond to radiation. I was like, yeah, but what about Keytruda? That's showing like amazing results with melanoma. And he was like, not happening. He's like, if you want to be here in five years, you'll go through with the surgery. And I just went, what, what do you mean? He's like, if you don't do the surgery, if you don't 
like, he's like, this is your only chance and your best chance at having a future. My dad and I just kept going, but I'm 22. I like, I want a normal life. I want to have a normal future. I want to have all of that. And the doctor just kept coming back. He's like, the reason I'm telling you this and the reason I'm so insistent on the surgery is because you're 22 Mm. and you've got a full life ahead of you. And if you don't do the surgery, you're throwing it away. And I just remember getting to the end of that appointment and I felt so emotionally drained. And I just remember the like last moment was like looking at my parents and I was just like, it was just this like pleading sort of defeated look of like help, like please just find something like being like, I wanted them on my team and I knew they were on my team, but I just felt so helpless at that moment. Yeah. It was like, we knew that we'd exhausted every single option. And it was just that moment of like, come on, like we, we just need a miracle right now. And that look of my, my, my parents still talk about that look I gave them because they were like, we just felt hope, like helpless as well. And we couldn't do anything. And yet all we wanted was to give you the answers. And that was sort of the moment where we went, okay. And the doctor just left the room and I then had to go home that night and really sort of come to terms with it myself. And yeah. at that point he was like, you know, it's still your choice. You can choose to not go through with the surgery but he's like, if you don't do the surgery, the, the cancer is just going to continue to grow and to fester and to take over the rest of your body. And I went, oh, that doesn't sound great. Mm. Um, and I went home and I was like, okay, well, you know, what are my options here? And I really started to look at it. I went to my bedroom and I literally just shut off the rest of the world for about 24 hours and just kind of like deep dived into my own sort of like emotional subconscious and started to think about it. I was like, okay, well, you know, if I don't go through it, through with it, then that's it. I've got five years. And there was this point where I went, okay, well, I'm pretty blessed in a way that I have always lived my life in a way that I don't have any regrets. There's nothing, yeah. you know, there's always going to be things on my bucket list and things that I'd love to do. But I've never, like at that moment, I was like, I've never said no to an opportunity that's come up. And anything that I've wanted to achieve, I been given the opportunity to do I have done like at that point I bungee jumped and scuba dived and um I think I'd even done um skydiving at that point so I'd sort of like I, I like all of those ridiculous things that most people will have on their bucket list and haven't yet achieved I was like well, I've done all of those things I've traveled the world I've lived overseas I've done all of those amazing things at the age of 22 like I'm very blessed right now but it was also that moment when I thought about it and I was like, but there's still so much in the world that I want to see. And I was like, I need to make sure that I do go through with the surgery and I actually start embracing it. And then there was that moment of, well, how do I do it? Yeah. Because there's two options here. There's, there really is the option of going down the poor Jess story and really locking myself off from the rest of the world, finding a way to make money from home, um, you know, really just avoiding any sort of, um, judgment and social discrimination and going down that whole story of no one's going to love me. No one's going to accept me. No one's going to, you know, embrace me in a way that I've wanted to be embraced. So I may as well just throw away my life and just do everything from home. Mm. And then I was like, okay, but then there's also the other option of embracing this and somehow finding that deep confidence within me, finding a way to make this situation my own and to actually own everything that's going on for me right now and how I can, you know, find the support for my friends and my family and really sort of build myself up. And 
I went back and forth between those two conversations. I was like, I could be powerfully positive Jess or I could be poor Jess. And honestly, the poor Jess story was a lot easier. If you think about it, you know, that's the, that's the safe option. It means that you can, for me, it was like, I could cut off the rest of the world. I can just chuck everything away and I can just be alone. I don't have to, you know, face up to the rest of the world. I don't have to grow. I don't have to push myself to become someone else or to become a stronger version of myself. I can just, you know, just recluse and just be there. But I was like, but I'm being given a second chance at life. I am being given the option right now to actually survive and given that choice. And there are so many people out there that don't get that choice. And right now, if I throw that away, And I don't go through with the surgery, that's bad enough. But if I go through with the surgery and then I lock myself away in my bedroom, that's completely unfair. And I'm just throwing away that opportunity and that second chance at life. So it was this whole story that this shift that I went, okay, well, if I'm going to embrace it, how am I going to do it? And that was kind of where the whole eye patch thing came in. And I was like, well, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to make this part of like my normal style and I'm going to embrace it. It's going to be fun. And within about 24 hours, I had like this whole list on Etsy of all the different eye patches I wanted (laughs) and all the different colors and like bright, colorful, rhinestone filled ones. And it was like this exciting kind of shift. And I remember still having to then go and explain to my friends and stuff what was happening, but at least then I had this solution already in place. Yeah. Um, so it's sort of like, you know, this it's, it's shit. Like it's not a good situation, but you know, I'm going to go through with the surgery and I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to come out with a really cool fashion accessory on the other side and we'll be good. <laughs> and for me, it was like that moment where I kind of felt, okay, cool. Like now that we've got the solution, I can go through with this. Um, I was like, there's no doubt that there was still those really difficult days. Yeah. Um, where it's like that sort of why me, this is not fair. Like I'm 22. This is ridiculous. But then there were the other days where I was like, okay, well at least I balance and I can keep moving forward. Mm. And by the time the surgery happened, my sister had set up like a, um, a what's it called? Like a GoFundMe page. And we raised, I think she raised about $10,000 to go towards eye patches because they're a lot more expensive than I would have ever thought. I was like, oh yeah, I remember seeing them in like the $2 store. Um, <laughs> but if you want anything of good quality, they're you know, upwards of $50 an eye patch. Um, oh, wow. I think my most expensive one's like $300. Wow. <laughs> yeah. But that one is like, Right, so blowing down amazing. I know, right? <laughs> I needed one that was done by Madonna. I've actually had a few people come up to me <laughs> and go, "Oh, are you copying Madonna's look?" And I was like, "No, honey, I had it first. <laughs> <laughs> She's copying me." <laughs> I know. I was like, I don't know where she saw it, but you know, I wore it better. If you like your beauty products to stand out, look a little different, and smell amazing, then I'm pretty sure you should check out Sugar Monster. Brand new and completely Adelaide-based, Sugar Monster Scrubs are natural body products with a quirky style to them. You'll have to see to know why. All completely handmade, vegan and cruelty-free with skin-loving ingredients that your body will love. Plus, they smell good enough to eat. But don't actually do that. Check out the range at sugarmonster.com.au and support local business. (laughs) So tell us about the second um, surgery and what was happening there. Yeah, so... Basically, after the first surgery, like as I said, I was really scared that life wasn't going to go back to normal, but it mm. did. Um, I went back to study. I went back 
I was driving, I was back working at my part-time job. I was doing everything normal. Within about six months, I was back at the gym. I was actually training for a half marathon. Um, and as it was sort of nearing that one year mark, me and my mum were sitting at home and we were sort of, you know, talking about, you know, how much life had changed and in some ways like life had changed so much and in other ways like, you know, I'd been given this the second chance and we started talking about how we were going to actually celebrate that one year anniversary. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were talking about like eye cakes and eye decorations and all of that sort of thing. And I went off, had a shower because I was about to go to work. I was procrastinating writing a, a, a um, thing for my uni um, assignment. And it was like in I got out of the shower and my little toe on my right side started to bounce. And it just looked like a little bit of a twitch to start with. Um, but instead of, I guess like with the normal twitch, like you know how it kind of like twitches and it slowly just sort of like, stops yeah this was becoming more aggressive and i started to just feel a little bit funny and i was like something's off something's really wrong i called out to my mum, who luckily was still at home normally she was working like it was very rare for her to work from home um and i called out and i was like can you come here like i really need you mum. you know assuming i was just being you know a bit lazy that i'd forgotten either the towel in the um in the cupboard or you know there wasn't toilet paper in the bathroom. It's kind of like, oh, what do you need? And I was like, mom, just come here. Seriously, I need you. So she sort of like begrudgingly walks down the hallway and you can hear her stomping. And like, as she's coming, like my toes, like starting to bounce more and more aggressively. And she gets there and I'm like, mom, my toes bouncing. And she just looks at, she's like, it's a twitch. What is wrong with you? And I was like, no, no. I was like, it's, it's, it just doesn't feel right. Like something's going on. It's not stopping. It's been bouncing for like 20 seconds. And she was like, it's, it's a twitch. Like you've just been to the gym. You've just done all these things. It's fine. And all of a sudden my whole foot started like doing this pulsing, like twitch thing. And I was like, no, mum, this is really weird. Like, I don't think this is normal. And mum's like, oh, well, if you don't feel right, sit down. And I was like, okay. And as I sat down, it was like this whole thing went up through my shit, like my calf muscle. Yeah. And it looked like if you've ever had a cramp, you know, that's sort of like where, like you can see the muscles kind of like, yeah tense yeah so it looked like that but it wasn't holding like a normal cramp was it was actually like pulsing and it kind of looked like there was without sounding weird it was sort of like this it looked like there was an invisible hand like grabbing in and like pushing in with my calf and then like releasing like that was the only way I could describe it I was like what on earth is going on and mom's still seeing it she's like oh it's just a cramp it's just a cramp I was like no mom this is not a cramp and I was studying nutrition so I was like you know, I've been to the gym, but I've had enough, you know, I'm hydrated. I've had all my, um, you know, I've had protein shakes. I've had, you know, every mineral that I can think of that I would need. So there's no reason why I would be cramping and to such a weird extent. Um, I was like, this is not okay. There's something seriously wrong. And like, as soon as I sort of said that there was this like electric shock that just felt like it went all the way from my pinky toe right through, um, into my chest. And it was like, my whole body just sort of felt like it was tensing up. I felt like I, at that point, I remember in my mind going, how ironic, like I have survived cancer and now I'm going to die of some sort of stroke or heart attack. And my mum was like, you know, she was saying, she's like, Jess, you're okay. You're okay. I was trying to get the words out and I was like choking on the words. 
I like couldn't get them out and I was so scared. I was like trying to get it. She's like, do you need me to call an ambulance? I'm trying to say yes. And I can't even say yes. And there was this panicked moment. I was like, is she even going to realize that something's wrong? Um, because I can't say anything. Of course, like I just me sitting there, like I couldn't say anything and she knew something was wrong and she was like on the phone immediately. But that was my thought pattern was like, she's not even going to know something's wrong. I'm not responding. She might be thinking that I'm playing or I don't know. Um, and I just remember the last sort of thing was just this thought of like, okay, well, you know, this is over. And I just remember the world like going black and I honestly didn't think I was going to wake up from it. Um, and like, if, like my, the next thing I remember is my mum throwing a towel over the top of me um, and I felt it land on me and I just remember thinking like how long have I been out? Is it, is it you know, was it a few minutes? Was it a few days? Like what's going on? Mm. Um, and I was so disoriented when I came to and like I tried to sit up and mum's like, no, lie down, lie down, lie down. Um, she got the ambulance there and then I was told that I'd had a seizure. Now, at that point in my mind, seizures were related to epilepsy and that was the only reason why you'd have a seizure. Um, so in my, that was sort of what I thought. I was like, oh, okay, cool. Like, you know, cancer, epilepsy, cool. What else can I add to my medical belt there? <laughs> um, <laughs> a lot of experiences in such a young life. And they said because it was my first seizure, I had to go down to the hospital. Um, they needed to do a couple of tests and just sort of see what had caused it. Um, not to worry. It was nothing too bad. Like I hadn't hit, like it was lucky that my mum had been there and told me to sit down because yeah. I don't know if I would have. Um, and that would have caused a lot of damage if I'd fallen over or hit my head or something like that. But because I was already lying down, even though I had that sort of like the, my limbs and stuff were flailing around, um, because I was in a seated position, um, it wasn't too big of a deal. Um, and yeah, so we went to the hospital. They did a CT scan. They noticed something funny on my brain. They went through and did an MRI. At this point, my mum had actually gone home just to check on my siblings because I'm one of four. Um, and we'd been at the hospital already for six hours, I want to say. So she just went home to check on them, just make sure that they'd sort of sorted out food and just tell them that we we're at the hospital and stuff. Um, and the doctor came in and she wanted to speak to me. And I was like, you know, she looked around, she's like, oh, is your mum here? And I went, well, no, but I'm 22. Like, you can talk to me. I'm an adult. You, mm. you don't need my parents here to have this conversation. She just looked at me and she's like, um, I'm going to wait. And I was very irritated and very indignant. I was like, well, I'm an adult. Like, you can have this conversation. Don't be ridiculous. She's like, uh, no, I'd rather wait. And I was like, oh. okay. So then I called my mum. I was like, mum, you need to get here. Like they're not, they won't give me any of the results until you're here for whatever reason. I'm getting really irritated and I just want to know what's going on. So she came and then this doctor came back into the room and it was just like, all of a sudden she goes, it's the cancer, it's returned, it's on your brain and we're going to have to send you up to the Peter Mac Hospital, which was my treating cancer hospital after the Royal India Hospital. Yeah. And... I just remember this moment of, for me, it was a moment of peace. And I like, I just remember in the back of my mind just going, it's going to be okay. This is going to be a really tough journey ahead of you, but there's so much more that you still need to be doing in this world and you'll be okay, but it's going to be tough. But my mum's sitting next to me and she's just hysterically crying and the doctor's even standing there. And I think for her, 
it was this sort of moment of like how it must have been one of the hardest pieces of news to deliver, especially if you've got a medical background knowing that at that stage, melanoma, if it was stage three, it was still a little bit treatable, but stage four melanoma wasn't very treatable at all. Yeah. Um, so basically in her mind for the doctor, I know that she thought she was giving me my death sentence. Um, and for me, I was like, oh, okay, well, that's not really ideal. Um, what do we do? What, what's the plan from here? How are we going to move forward? And she was like, oh, okay, well, we, you know, we'll send you up to the, the Royal India Hospital, uh, sorry, the Peter Mac Hospital, and, you know, it'll, they'll make decisions from there, but we have to keep you here for 24 hours first. So I was still very optimistic and kind of like, well, we'll just, you know, until something else happens, we'll, you know, just focus on the fact that there could be treatment options of going to the Peter Mac. They've got to have something. Hmm. And then we were sent to the Peter Mac and um, they kind of turned around and they were quite optimistic, thankfully, as well. And they were saying that um, I needed to have brain surgery almost immediately. And on top of that, I needed to go on to immunotherapy. So I mentioned one of those before, which was Keytruda. Yeah. Um, within the 12 months of me losing my eye and this stuff happening, there'd actually been a few more treatments that had been released under that same banner of immunotherapy. And they were now suggesting one for me that was a dual immunotherapy. So they actually used two different drugs together because they were finding that that had a better response for some cancers. However, that treatment wasn't on the PBS. So it was, um, I think they said upwards of $30,000 per dose and I was going to have to have four doses. Um, yeah. So I was being told within the space of like 48 hours, I was being told that I had stage four melanoma. My dad flew over. He landed within 24 hours of me having the seizure, which was incredible because the flight from South Africa alone is like between, depending on what route you go, it's between 14 and 18 hours. So he was incredible to be here, like within that sort of time. And then on top of that, we were being told that the treatments and the options that I needed was brain surgery, which was, you know, terrifying for anyone. Um, And especially since I'd been so sporty and stuff throughout my life, I was like, I know that this could really impact my ability to exercise, to walk, to do anything. But at the same time, I was like, you know, at the end of the day, this is life, this really is life or death. Um, Even when I went in for the surgery, the doctors had to continuously go, you know, do you understand that there is a risk of you not never being able to walk again? Um, and I went, yes, but if I don't go through with the surgery, I'm not going to be here. And then they just kept going, you know, there's a 5% chance that you'll never walk again and a 10% chance that you'll have um, affected, like highly affected movement on the right side of your body. And I just eventually yelled at the doctors. I was like, if you want me to go through with the surgery, I was like, you've got to stop like telling the worst case scenarios because if I don't go through with it, the there is a hundred percent chance that I'm not going to be here. Yeah. And the doctors were like, but we have to. And I was like, I get that. I get that there's like the legalities here, but I can't emotionally deal with this right now. Um, and I was like, if you want me to go through with the surgery, you're going to stop. <laughs> and poor doctors, I felt really bad for mm-hmm. them, but I was like, I just need to look after my mental health right now. Yeah. And that was the only way I knew how to. Um, and yeah, so then that, the other thing was the treatment that was going to be, um, was going to cost so much money. And at the start, I actually rejected it. I was just like, nope, we'll go through with the Katrina cause that was on the, um, on the PBS. And the doctor was like, 
you know that the other so the other treatment option gives you like another 20% chance of survival. And I was like, yes, but that's $120,000 that you're asking us to put on the line for a treatment that may or may not work. And could, like the immunotherapies, the difference with it is, is that it either works or it doesn't. Yeah. It's not, there's no in between of like, it kind of works a little bit, or at least at that point, that's what they were saying. It's like, you respond and you're a full responder or you don't respond. There's not mm-hmm. really this gray area of like, it'll prolong life. So for me, it was like this moment of like, well, if you can't guarantee that it's going to work, then what you're guaranteeing is that my parents are going to be out of pocket that kind of money for a surgery, for a treatment option that could potentially not work at all. And I couldn't quite accept that at that point. Um, And we, it was only when my dad actually suggested doing a crowdfunder um, to try and get the treatment for me that I agreed to do it. I was like, I'm not doing a, like, I'm not letting you guys go into that kind of debt for it. Yeah. Um, so while I was recovering from the brain surgery, my parents and I were also setting up like a, a crowdfunding page. Um, and we also got the, so we got the amount, I think we got the amount for the first dose within 24 hours of releasing our fundraiser, wow. which was amazing. Um, so I was able to tr- start treatment as soon as possible, like as soon as that came through. Um, and then um, they also had to wait for, I think it was like a month between the brain surgery and actually starting treatment because um, I had to get off some of the drugs and the medications that I was on because of the brain surgery. So there was a lot of sort of time that kind of felt a bit wasted and stuff and it was very confusing. Mm. But um yeah, that the brain surgery was um, was very challenging as well. Um, yeah, having to relearn how to walk at like, tw- I think I was twenty three by that stage. Um, it was very disheartening because like a week beforehand, I'd been running. Like yeah. I had literally been out running seven or eight kilometers um, at like under five minute like under five minutes per kilometer type thing. So I was like training pretty hard and loving my running. And then it went to a stage where I think I did my first walking test about a week after we, or no, about two weeks after I'd had the brain surgery. And in six minutes I could walk 60 meters. Wow. So yeah, it was a bit of a a contrast. (laughs) So um, you have also started a career as a public speaker what are the things you'd like to tell others about your story? Oh, that's a really hard <laughs> question. Um, so for me, I think when I went into the motivational speaking, it was more around the fact that you can face whatever it is in your life, any adversity, any challenges, and you've got a choice of how you do that. Mm. Um, you know, you've got a choice of whether you go into that real mode of um like being a victim and this is the worst thing that can happen or you can go into that. How do I be the hero of my own story? And I think that's such an important message to give to anyone, whether it's, you know, cancer and drastic things like what I talk about, or if it's even just making decisions, you know, with your career paths later down the track or making a decision to start up a business, like you can go into that victim mode or you can be the hero. Mm. I think a good thing too, is to focus on that one thing like you did with the eye patches. Mm. That was almost your, brightening moment that yeah gave you the strength to continue on you also have a book titled i won (laughs) e-y-e one i love the title tell us more about it thank you 
So for me, when I was going through everything, as I sort of mentioned, um, there wasn't anyone in my age group going through it. And Mm. there was such a feeling of like absolute loneliness and there wasn't a lot of hope. I asked, my doctor did have a couple of other young patients that he'd seen previously and he refused to give me names and numbers and contact information about them. And I just remember thinking, that's all I need. I just need someone else to be there, to guide me, to help me, to give me that piece of hope and positivity. Mm. Uh, Yeah. And I was looking for other mentors and other role models. And so one of the things I decided when I was done was that I really wanted to give that, like pay that forward and be that sort of shining light for other people that were going through that, um, you know, on a cancer wise side, but also in the book, I do just go into really specific stuff about building resilience and how, you know, any challenge, again, as you face them, there is that choice of becoming the victim of being the hero. And I have the patch method. Yes. Like the eye patch <laughs> um, to building resilience. And that kind of goes into building a positive mindset and um, looking at the growth mindset stuff and gratitude and um, creating goals and honoring yourself with self-care as well. So it really deep dives into that whole method, um, which is so useful for anyone facing any form of challenge and adversity. Fantastic. Now, Jessica, where can the listeners find out more about you and also about the book? (laughs) Absolutely. I I love Instagram. Um, My Instagram handle is literally just my name, Jess Van Zeele. I've also got my website, jessvanzeele.com. If you're struggling to spell the last name, you can also just pop jess.coach into your web browser and that will bring up my website and all the information about where to find the book. It is internationally available. If you're listening in Australia, um, you can order directly from me and I do send out all my copies signed. Fantastic. And I will just reiterate, Van Zeel is V-A-N-Z-E-I-L, just in case. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Jessica, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. I really appreciate it. It's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much. (laughs) No worries at all. And I will speak to you soon. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. Ants Talk. It's like Oprah, but not.